we've got a little bit of a curveball today. Uh, the curveball being that I'm not, I wasn't supposed to preach today. Um, we, I had a guest speaker for you, and I got a last-minute call, and he is sick. And so he was going to preach us through uh, Colossians, where we had finished last week. If you've not been here, or you're kind of still kind of fresh, we've been working our way through the book of Colossians from the very ver- first verse to the very end. He was going to pick up where I left off last week. So we're going to pause Colossians for one week, um, and I'm going to dazzle you with my last-minute preparation. How does that sound? And so if you can, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 29. Speaking of curveballs, you know the history of a curveball. A little baseball history for all of you. I know this is why you got up early in the morning and drove in the cold. Um, The curveball gives an optical illusion from the pitcher's mound that it's dropping and actually curving in the air because of the positive spin on it. It actually goes from the top of the strike zone to the bottom of the strike zone in the short distance between the pitcher's mound and the batter's box, right? Such a deception it was that Harvard and Princeton's baseball teams decided that it was so deceptive that they weren't going to use it because it was akin to lying to them. And they wanted an honest game in baseball. So they said, we will not pitch the curveball because it is so deceptive. And so they probably went on to have a horrible team after that until probably decades later they added that to their pitching cadre. Anyway, that was for free. How do you like that? Um... Speaking of curveballs, this is we're going to talk about a guy. I'm going to bring you up to speed on this before we read it. Some of you are may have never heard this story. Um, some of you just want a refresher, but I want to talk about Jacob for a second. <clears throat> Jacob is a guy in the Bible. His name actually means deceiver. Um, he was a we'll just say he was a con artist, a little bit of a swindler, a little bit of a smooth character. Okay. Um, he was in a little bit of what we call a dysfunctional family where he had a brother that was not like him. His brother was, his name was Esau. Esau was kind of a dude's dude. You know, he could throw a spiral and gut a deer and, you know, clean a gun. And he, he was not his brother. Jacob was not this guy, right? His mom kind of took a liking to Jacob. Dad kind of took a liking to Esau. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was the little brother. Okay? Now, um, Jacob was so much of a con man that he actually had swindled his brother on two occasions. One of those occasions, he stole his birthright. doesn't sound like a big deal. It's like stealing a birthday or something, but it's a little bit more than that. A firstborn got twice as much inheritance as everybody else. Okay, So by stealing that, swindling him out of that, he actually got more of the property, got more of the inheritance, which irked Esau pretty bad. But if that wasn't bad enough... When Isaac, dad, was on his deathbed handing out blessings, there was a special blessing in store for the firstborn. Jacob, and it's a great story if you don't know it, you need to read it. Jacob swindles his father, blind and almost dead, out of this blessing, and he brings it on himself. Well, at this point, Esau's about had it. He's like, look, as soon as his funeral's over, you're dead. I mean, in so many words, that's what he's saying. You're dead, and I won't even break a sweat on it. You're done. Just count on it. Mom knows this. Rebecca, okay, Isaac's wife. Mom knows this, and so she says, you've got to get out of town. You've got to get out of town, and I don't want you taking a wife from this part of the world. I want you to go and take a wife closer to where my brother lives. My brother is Laban. That's his name. And so, funeral's about over. He gets on a horse. He's gone. It, not really a horse. That's just a... A phrase. He's gone. We'll just say that. He's out of there. He makes it all the way to Laban. Esau, not liking him, probably never going to go back in his mind. He's probably done with that. Shows up at Uncle Laban's house. 
Okay? And he's going to live with him and serve him. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 29. Look at verse 15. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to pause in a couple places. Um, This is, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. Okay, pause. Leah in Hebrew means cow. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. It says cow, wild cow. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, that that word means you or little baby lamb. Already you're seeing a distinction between the two daughters, okay? One is beautiful, one is not. I'm just saying that's what the Bible says, okay? I'm not writing this. It says in verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak. Okay, pause. Leah's eyes were weak. Most scholars believe could mean one of three things. None of them are good. One of them means that she might have not had very good eyesight. Like me, I've got horrible eyesight. So she's squinting all the time and it kind of changed her features. Another one is that she had a lazy eye. It's, it's possible. Okay. And another one is she's just not that easy on the eyes. Scholars can't decide which of those three it is. Like I said, it doesn't matter. Pick one. It's not good, right? Because right after that it says, But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Needs no explanation. You're seeing a distinction drawn right now in this text between a... Now, I mean, talk about a dysfunctional family. This one probably wasn't set off really well either. Because you've got a situation where you've got a pretty sister and a not pretty sister. Okay, And that's going to cause some issues later on in their story. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Well, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her away to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Isn't that sweet? It just seemed like a few... Oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Seven years. It's just like a few days, you know. Then Jacob said... Okay, 21 starts seven years later. Then Jacob said, Hey, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. We've been looking at each other for seven years. I've been serving you for seven years. We've been flirting, dreaming, hoping. Now seven years has come. Wedding time, baby. So he goes, all right. So Laban gathered together all the people of all the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Okay, pause. Okay, this is jacked up, isn't it? This is what you have. You have this situation where there's a wedding celebration and Rachel is there. Pictures are being taken with Rachel and Jacob, you know, walking down the aisle. Congratulations, gifts, a big mound of gifts. I mean, it's, it's their moments. But he gets so drunk. He gets so to where he cannot tell the difference between one woman and another that when he goes to begin his honeymoon and his marriage, it's with the wrong woman. That is what's happening. Okay? And it happened because the swindler was swindled. Right? The dad did this. And don't, don't think for one second Leah wasn't in on it. How do you not be? Right? So you've got a swindle, a drunk swindler being swindled by a crooked father-in-law who brings in a woman that's not going to be loved by a man who pretty much had a preference for another woman. It's pretty messed up. Verse 25, very important verse in this whole story. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, right? And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? 
Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Don't you love that? Oh, you didn't get the memo? Listen, I can understand the, the miscommunication we've had for seven years, you know? Yeah, we usually do it a little differently, you know? That's messed up. And then he says this, Complete this week for this one, which is basically go finish your honeymoon, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me, what, another seven years, which was probably not like a few days. I will bet money. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. This is like a bad sitcom. This is a messed up situation, is it not? I mean... What I appreciate in this whole passage is verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Have we not all had a moment like that or moments in our life where we felt like that? I mean, all besides the fact you married your cousin and it was the wrong one. I mean, if you take that out of it, I know none of us have ever had that. But the moment where you have these dreams and these hopes and you've been pining for something and then they're dashed. That moment where it takes your breath and you're kind of reeling. Oh no, what's happened? Oh, oh my gosh, this isn't what I thought. Well, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. That moment, that horrible moment where you just enter the sludge of a situation and you're like, oh my gosh, I feel pressed in from every corner and I don't know what to do. That's what I appreciate for this. I mean, it, lo- it looks so dysfunctional, doesn't it? So far from what should have happened. And it's easy to read this and see this massive wreck and wonder, where the heck is God in this whole thing? Where is He? In this whole weird, dysfunctional, cruddy, Jerry Springer-esque thing, where is God to be found? Where is He to be found? Why is this in the Bible? Think about it. Why is this in the Bible? I mean, what does it have to say to, to the Gospel? What does it got to say to Jesus? What does this have to do with the cross? Or you, or me, or our response? I mean... What does this have to do with anything? I will tell you that people rarely come to a crisis, faith crisis in their life when things are going really well, when they get Rachel. Okay? When they wake up, behold, in the morning it's Rachel. People don't have a crisis of faith. But whenever they wake up and it's cow instead of Rachel, then you start asking yourself, where is God in this whole thing? The curveball comes and you scratch your head and you don't know what to do, right? Am I being punished? Is God growing me? Did the devil do this? Did God do this? What is going on? Where is God? And all we know is that we're suffering. We thought we heard God right. I mean, tell me, how many of y'all have ever said that to yourself? I thought I heard God. I thought I heard God on this, right? We don't know how to pray. We don't understand what's going on. We're crushed, dreams are dashed, hopes are leaking, and we don't know how to move forward. So we have different responses, don't we? What did Job's wife tell Job? Why don't you just curse God and die? Because he was having an exaggerated verse 25 moment, was he not? Why don't you just curse God and die? Sometimes we just make excuses for God. Because we, we think in our mind, God must be better than this. So I'm going to make an excuse. We'll put on our smiley face and we'll fake it and act like things are okay. I mean, it's really difficult, isn't it? When you have these moments where you really try to put something together that you really wanted to see God do and you believe that He put it together and then bam, out of nowhere, it just it hits a pothole and you're left with nothing. What do we do? 
I think right now every single one of us in this room is dealing with now or has recently an unmet expectation. An unmet expectation. A seeming alleged failure sitting before you. And if you aren't, you know someone that is. I mean, everyone in this room knows someone with cancer or who has had cancer. I I know a few people now, right? I mean, some of you are probably with me now. How many of you lost a job or been laid off? Unmet expectation, right? Marriage. Man, I mean, sometimes you just look in your spouse, you're thinking, I love you, but this isn't what I expected, right? This is different than my expectations, which are not being met, right? We have these things. I think how we look at the, at the gospel, how we look at God, how we look at Christ, His story, the cross, I think it defines and informs how we catch these curveballs, which I think is important for us. So I want to look a little bit at God's sovereignty. I want to look, about what that, I want to look at what that means, what it says to the cross, what it says to you, and what it says to me. Sovereignty isn't a word we use very much anymore, isn't it? It sounds very Lord of the Rings-ish. It's like an old language word, sovereignty. It's like it belongs in a hymn. We don't say it very much, but it really is a powerful doctrine. And when you have that as one of the cornerstones of how you understand God, how He sees you, and how He sees reality, it really changes how you look at failure and how you look at unmet expectations. Okay? Sovereignty. And there's several places we see it in the Bible. Don't turn to these places because I'm going to blast through them. But in Daniel 4.35, when God had returned... King Nebuchadnezzar's sanity to him, one of the things he said in his opening prayer is is that God does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? No one can do that. Psalm 115, the psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth. You see, the reality about God is He's preemptive. He's not reactionary. So what that means is, is God is not on the edge of His chair, wringing His hands, hoping that we work things out okay so that He could jump in and maybe help out a little bit. He's not just kind of watching and depending on us to do good things so that He could finally get in and show His might and His power. He's not reacting to our lead. He is the lead. You understand, He is God of all. He knows the end, just like He knows the beginning. That's amazing to me. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around this. But He weaves everything together in between. The whole time, by the counsel of His own will, by the purpose of His own seemingly wisdom, He he does it all according to the way that He wants to do it. And none will frustrate or intimidate His plans. We try to counsel God, don't we? (laughs) How to do things. But he goes according to a different counsel. It's his own counsel. It's his own will. You know, before he even flips the lights on and says go, before he makes the first mountain, pours the first ocean, before he breathes the first star, he saw that we were going to screw things up. He saw how much mankind was going to muck things up and cause this huge cosmic situation, and he already had an answer in place. He already had it working, and he already knew you intimately. That's even more bizarre, isn't it? Before you were a glimmer in your parents' eye, you were a glimmer in God's eye, and He knew you and knit you together in a very distinct and perfect way. This is a sovereign God, and you know what? We struggle with this. 
As people, I do. I struggle with it. Part of me kicks back on a little bit. Because you probably already have, as I'm talking about it, a bunch of questions that come up. Questions that I know I've had. Questions you've probably always wondered. Well, if God is sovereign, and then why do anything, Luke? Then why pray for things? If God always leads and we follow and He's preemptive and we're, we're reacting, then why do these things? I mean, there are a lot of questions that come up when you deal with God's sovereignty and mankind's actions. And I can't address all those today. The one thing I do want to address today regarding God's sovereignty is the question of, Luke, what am I supposed to do with this big, fat, sticky situation in my life? Verse 25. I've got Leah. What do I do? I'm suffering through it. I don't even know what to think about it. I don't know what my posture is supposed to be. I don't know how to pray about it. I don't know what it means. I don't know if I'm being unreasonable. Is it just total dysfunction and failure? Is it recoverable? Is it salvageable? Where is God in it? I'd like to deal with that. Just because I think we have good scripture for this. Paul got this question a lot. Um, Paul, you know, as he started planting churches, Christians just started sprawling. I mean, the church just started growing, and now they're going through persecution. A lot more than we do, right? Now, we still have things like cancer, and we still lose our job. We, we have the persecution of the soul. They were persecuted from the outside as well, though, because of their faith. So, the church in Rome, who was really, really going through it, as they were struggling with this, Paul wrote something to them, and I feel like it really helps us and informs us on this. Go ahead and turn here. This will probably be the only place I have you turn. In Romans 8 verse 18 this is actually a very great big, fat, thick piece of scripture that deserves three months. I'm not going to give it three months. So I hate I hate the fact that I'm blowing through stuff that's so deep and so rich, but for what we're doing today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway. In Romans 8, 18 Paul says this. Now listen, you've heard this a million times. You've heard this preached a million times. Try to hear it through new ears today, okay? As best as you can. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now skip down to verse 28. Ten verses down. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That sounds like a bunch of just stuff put together, doesn't it? Those are a lot of words that it's hard to see how they link together. What exactly is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, look, you guys are hemmed in with struggles, sufferings. And and he's not discounting them. He's saying that they're a real deal. You really do have some struggles. But God is giving you grace now by calling you a son or a daughter of the king, and he's got more grace coming. He, He has grace for you now, and he will continue to bring more grace. This is how this looks. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's really hard for us to believe all the time, isn't it? That's hard for me to believe all the time. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now listen. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. What does that mean? That's most... I will tell you, some people will say, Well, Luke, that means that God looked in the future and saw that you were going to choose Him... So he turned around and chose you. 
He looked way into the future, way from the past, eternity past, and saw Luke or Wes or Kevin and said, you know what, I see Kevin, he's going to choose me in this year when he's a young man, and because of that I choose him. You know, It's like the circular thing that's going on. But that's not really what this is saying. That word for no is not talking about God knowing an action that you're going to do in the future. It's a deep knowledge of who you are. It's a knowledge that's coming from an intertwining, like I know my wife. Right? It's a deep knowledge. He doesn't just know things that you're going to do. He knows who you are. He, he was the architecture of your soul, or the architect of your, skull, uh, your soul. He, he puts you together in such a way that he knows you better than you know yourself. So, what does this mean then? Okay, for those whom he foreknew, you, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, we talked about this the last couple weeks being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We talked about it being called sanctification, which is just a long word for Christian growth. Beginning at the point where you become a Christian and ending either at death or when Christ reappears. Right? The end point is called glorification. I know these are big words, okay? Um, but this is basically what we're reading in this passage, so I felt like it was important to go over. So you're not just foreknown and saved so that you can sit Why are you foreknown? So you'd be predestined, selected, picked out, rescued, handpicked to be conformed to the image of His Son. We struggle with that verse. Okay? We do. Even Reformed people, even people that are hard Calvinists, they struggle with this verse a little bit. Because we don't like to be predestined. We like to have control over those things of salvation. It says, In order that he might be firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, selected, picked out, he also called. Well, what does that mean, called? That means that even though Jesus picked you out from before the creation, before the foundation stones were laid, before anything was set up, before he flipped the switch, like I said, and said, go, before all that happened, he knew you, but there still was that time in linear history where your heart was open to the gospel. That was God's gospel call on your life, where you responded, okay? Where you said, you know what, I've heard, like me, I heard the gospel a million times until the time where it really cut me open. I heard it, and I was like, ooh, for years. And then there was a time where they preached the gospel, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm jacked up. I need to get right with God now, immediately. Please hurry up with the preaching. I've got to do it now. There was that time. Well, what's the difference? God had brought his gospel effectual call on my life at that moment, okay? That's what that means. He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. That was the moment of salvation where you were brought before God and claimed as just before him, okay? And those whom he was justified, uh, he also glorified, which is just you with a new body and a new time before God, knowing as you were known, seeing as you were seen, okay? So, that's a lot of theology, isn't it? It's really thick with theology, high-level theology. What does it mean? It means you're on a progression, Here you are as a Christian. Struggles are coming. Sufferings are all around you, raining on you, pushing on you, before you, behind you. I mean, you're going from one to the other, suffering everywhere. Unmet expectations, verse 25 situations in every department, right? Nothing looks like it should. Yet, you're being drawn to the image of Christ. There's grace for you now, and there will continue to be grace for you. And, and, even as sticky and as weird and as dysfunctional as your little situation is, God is in it. And not only is he in it, he's claiming some of those things and he's going to work it for his glory. Work it for good, it says. It's hard to believe. i tell you what, though. Jacob would have loved this verse. 
had he had it handy back in verse 25. This came a long time later, but he would have loved to have known that somehow God was going to work that for good. I don't know that it would have done any help to preach it to him. That would have been a message he's probably not listening to. But at the same time, it would have been helpful for him to know. Because in this messy thing of a drunk swindler being swindled by a crooked father-in-law to marry the wrong cousin, as weird as that is, as crooked, as jacked up as that is, 30 generations later, Jesus Christ was going to come from that bloodline. So, Leah has babies. They start making babies. Fourth son is Judah. Judah is the line that Jesus Christ comes from over 30 generations later. What a... What an amazing thing. Now, if Jacob was there and he was told that, and he had that ability of hindsight in that moment, he wouldn't have freaked out. He might not have reacted the way he did. I'll tell you what. If God could not be present in dysfunctional situations in our lives, he'd never be present. Wouldn't have much left to work with, would he? I mean, I don't know about you, not all of the situations in my life are great. I've got some sticky things or some slurge that I'm, I'm shaking off of this leg and then I leave it and there's something else greeting me and I'm like, ay, 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 are you kidding me? You deal with that. Then you come over here and you deal with this. If God can't be present in those verse 25 moments, where is He going to be present exactly? I mean, that's what is surrounding us. That's what our life looks like. If he could only be clean, in just these clean situations, starched situations, tucked in situations where everything is upright, if that was only where God would show up, he would have never come through a dirty manger. Through what others saw as a scandalous relationship of a, of a baby out of wedlock. Coming from a family with no name, that came from a city with no name, that looked sticky and messy. He would have never come through that venue. But he did. That's how he came and carved himself into his own creation. So, not only does he use dysfunctional circumstances to drive and motor his purpose and his story, it's one of the biggest parts of his story. One of the biggest parts. Think about it now. Of all the unmet expectations in the Bible, of all the Leah situations, right? Jesus Christ coming for, men, for, for most, I'll just say this, for most of the people around him, he was a big unmet expectation for people. He was. They were expecting a king. They were expecting a king that, were gonna, that was going to free that nation from Roman rule. And they got a king that was going to free them from death and from sin. They expected a king to come from noble backgrounds. And they got a baby with manger on his birth certificate. They expected something more than a carpenter. They expected something different in Jesus. And then he gets put on a cross. That's incredibly unexpected. If you're following after him, listen, they were not expecting that. Even though they were told, that was an unmet expectation. Behold, it was Leah. Their faces were shocked. And then he died. Well, my gosh, that's even worse. Could you imagine being around them? You would have heard things like, Oh, well, now what? I did not see that coming. That's a curveball. That's different than what we'd expected. I mean, he's the king of unmet expectations. He is the proof. That's how he came in. That's how he did his thing. If God needed you to never mess up and to never encounter trouble to work through you, once again, he'd have nothing left to work with. Right? He finds us in the most unlovely of places. 
That's where He rescues us. He doesn't rescue us from a polished position where we are upright and in good station in life. He doesn't do that. We're jacked up. I was jacked up. I was so jacked up I didn't even ask for Him. I didn't want to be saved. I was rescued from that. Right? I mean, we're spiritually dead. How much more dysfunctional can we be? That's the place where He finds us. So, okay, so why am I spending so much time doing this? Why am I spending so much time trying to convince you that God shows up in the slurge of life and engages us and works these things for good? Why am I trying to show you and prove to you that He is that God, that He is sovereign, that He goes ahead, that He knew, that He allowed, that He is present, that He is ever there, and He is working it, working it and weaving it into this story that will roll and roll and roll until the end of time. Why? Why am I trying so hard? Because I think that if we, sh- we, we need to as Christians, I will just say this, shift the way we look at failure and shift the way that we look at suffering. We have to. You know, we don't share... God's ability to see in hindsight. It'd be nice if we did. I would like that. I can't see with the problems I have today, uh, I, I can't see in my Leah's today what God will birth 30 generations from now. I can't even see what's going to happen 30 days from now. But I serve a God who does. And I trust that God. I don't know with all of the frustrations I have all of the potholes I hit as a young man, as a young pastor, as a young father, as a young husband. I don't know what God is going to do with these situations. I don't know how He's going to work it for good. I don't know how He's going to turn these potholes into something beautiful. But I know that He's going to do it for His glory. I know that He's going to because I believe His Word. I mean, He authored His story. He knows the end. He knows what's going to happen. So I need to shift in how I see failure. I need to shift in how I look at my unmet expectations. And I need to be a Christian. I need to, I need to be a Christian and not one as spiritually dead and dysfunctional because I was rescued from that. So what do I need to do? I need to ask myself some questions in these situations. I need to ask myself when, I'm, when I roll over and behold, it is Leah. When that moment happens, <clears throat> I need to say, what is God doing in me right now? I need to say, what is God doing around me? How, how can I draw glory to God in this? How can I find God's grace in the midst of this? These are gospel-centered questions that we ask that remove ourself from the middle, place God in the middle where He belongs. What we do is we learn in these situations how to praise, how to worship, how to be obedient, how to trust, how to have faith, even in those moments. That is how we do it. I tell you, we... I think a church... When I think about Knoxville, I think a church that trumpets all the time. I said something like this to our guys this morning. Trumpets, hey, if you come here, we'll teach you and show you how to never have Leah moments. Hey, you can, you can come and we'll show you. will never have a verse 25 happen to you. You'll roll over, Rachel will be there. Every department, welcome to life. That's what church is about. Get saved and that's what it's all about. We can do that. <clears throat> and man, that's just a lie. It's a lie. I have dysfunctional moments. I have dysfunctional family. I have all kinds. What they want to know is how to deal with that. That's what they want to know. That's our message as a church. That's what it needs to be. So, what is God doing in me? Because I will tell you, in fact, much of your growth will come in times of trial 
and in the middle of disappointment. That's where a lot of your growth is going to come from. Because some of you are given to despair and anger and unbelief, and we, we quickly fall into these things. I mean, have you ever noticed that you keep hitting the same potholes? It's, have you ever noticed that it's like the same Leah's that find you? The same verse 25's that keep coming? The same feelings that are provoked? I don't really get a garden variety myself. Right? I'll give you an example. Because I love to embarrass myself in front of everybody on iTunes. I'm, I'm a little bit of a bleeder. Okay? So what that means is, is I'm always a victim. Alright? I have a proclivity for this. Someone is costing me, usually. That dude did that, that cost me. I'm going to whine about it. The circumstances isn't like it's not like I want. I'm gonna whine about it because it makes me feel better, and I want everyone to know that it's not my fault. It's that fault. It's just, so I'm a bleeder. I kind of whine, you know. And I always have to say, if I could just get a fair shake, if I could just get everything to work out, then then I'll be taken care. What God started showing me is, <clears throat> no, I'm doing some surgery on you in those moments. In these Leah's Luke, I'm doing something in you, which is this. For me, the mantra I always have to say to myself, I say this all the time. So if I say it to you, that's because it's second nature. And it's this. You are never at the mercy of man. You're never at the mercy of a circumstance. You're only at the mercy of a very merciful God. I have to say that to myself all the time. I'm not at the mercy of man. Well, sure looks like it. Sure looks like this guy can torpedo your future. Or this circumstance can kneecap everything. It can end it all for you. Nope, it can't. I'm not at the mercy of that. I mean, if it does, God allowed it. But, I mean, I answer to God. And that helps me. It takes the bleeder away. The, the dramatist. The, the theatrical version of Luke. And it sheds him off because I'm able to worship God a little differently. God is doing something in me. So whenever you roll over and you see Leah there, ask yourself, what is God doing in me? What about this? What is God doing around me? The people around you. You know, we're a church of community groups, missional communities. You will always be around people. Listen, when your dreams come apart at the hinges, the, the laces start to come out of your hopes, people will be there to see it. And how you deal with it finishes the story for them. It does. This is where people see... And, and the, the, what I like about this is there's such a an opportunity for gospel application for us as Christians. Because the whole gospel is this. God in Jesus collides with man's depravity and filth and dysfunction and out of it comes grace. So what do I do when I'm in dysfunction? What do I do when I am in mess? What do I do when I am in those situations? I apply the gospel. I apply the gospel for others to see that grace will come out of it. And let me tell you, as a missional community, this is where it comes in strong. Whenever you are in a Leah moment, it's very difficult for you to get your head on a swivel and see that you need to apply the gospel. That's when you need community. You need someone to go, hey, 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 I know this is freaking you out. Don't let this freak you out. This happened to me. Not a big deal. God is in control. To have someone bring the gospel to you in that moment is very sweet community. If community is ever community, that is a good time for it is when you're dealing with those Leah moments. And what a beautiful thing for the world to see. I mean, the missional component of this is, is the lost world that we're reaching out to, they don't know what to do with their Leahs. They don't know what to do with that. And they just think, that's just the way my life's going to be. It's just dysfunctional in every way. I'm just a dysfunctional person. I guess I'll go get a self-help book. I guess I'll... I don't know it. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 when I was not serving God, I just ignored the fact that I had them. 
And that's how guys are when they get around each other. They act like their stuff doesn't stink and they're always fine and there's no problems and everything like that. But the truth is, is you're just you're sick inside because you don't know what to do with the problems that you have. To have community invade your privacy <laughs> and say, look, this is what the cross says to your problem. This is what the gospel says to you right now. It's a great time. So what is God doing around me? How can I draw glory to God in this? This is a tough one. This is a tough question. You know, when you trust and obey and worship in the middle of storm and pain and madness, it is a different kind of worship, isn't it? When you're able to worship God in the middle of that, it's a different kind of worship. I've always appreciated that verse that David, when David goes to worship God, um, he was going to prepare an altar with bulls and, and wood and everything, and the guy was going to actually give him the material for it. I, I'm, this is off the cuff, so I don't have a scriptural reference for you, but you can look it up. And this guy says, hey, I'm just going to give it to you. Here's the bulls, here's the cart, here's everything you need. And David says something very beautiful. He says, I will not worship God when it costs me nothing. I love that. I love that because it's very easy for us to worship God when everything is well and the birds are singing and everyone's Rachel around you and all your departments are up and running and where they ought to be. But man, when it is difficult, it is very hard. We get real self-centered. We get really, what about me? And it's just all about applying band-aids to ourselves, and it's very hard to worship God. But let me tell you, that is the most beautiful worship. That is the most beautiful worship that you could ever offer God is in the middle of your pain. When everything says, you don't know what's going to happen, and you answer with, I know, but I trust God. God, I trust you. I've got a pain in my heart. You know, I've lost somebody to cancer, or I've lost a child, or I'm dying of cancer. And I don't know what's going to happen, but all I know is that I trust you, I love you. I appreciate your grace and I beg for more of it. That, that is a different kind of worship, folks. It's something very beautiful. How can I draw glory to God in this? The thing is, is we have to understand that the story is not about us. Mainly, the story is not about us. It's about a God who began a relationship with mankind, who therefore cracked it. We cracked this relationship we have with God, spending most of what we see in the Old Testament trying to fix it ourselves, trying to bridge this gap, which is undoable, cannot be done. We cannot reach God according to our own might and our own strength. We can have different kings, we can have towers, we can have all kinds of things. We cannot reach God. God had to reach us. So He invades our space, coming, putting on skin, breathing our air, looking just like us, speaking our language, offering something different. He comes on earth as God and dies on a cross to do something. This story is about Him. The climax is that moment where He spends the utmost of His passion as a revolutionary against death, against sin, to do something for us that not only could we not pay for, we didn't ask for. We didn't even ask for it. It's that kind of love. Dies. A real death. Raised again to new life. Ascends to the right hand of His Father. His time starts marching on. And the church starts to grow. That He birthed. As, we, as His body starts to grow and multiply and multiply. Until the day where He returns on a white horse. With a sword. With a decree. And we can join Him once again. As a collected family. Adopted into nobility. That story is not about us. A story is about Him. So in our pain, 
when we struggle, when my kids are sick, when I have money stolen from me, whenever I lose my job, whatever, there is a point where we say, you know what? God, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to love you. Thank you for your grace. You've selected me. (laughs) You've picked me up for salvation when I didn't deserve it. And you're refining me. You're doing something in me. You're doing something huge around me to draw glory to yourself. And God, I'm all in. Thank you. That is a different kind of worship. If you cannot worship in those moments, you have a worship problem. That's hard. Listen, if you can't worship in that moment, if you can't worship at the night, in the storm, if you cannot worship in the madness, if you cannot worship in the lack, you cannot worship. If you can only worship when it does not cost you anything, that is not worship. Something totally different. How can I find God's grace in the midst of this? That's another question we need to be asking ourselves. You know, God, we usually fixate on the grace that we get to enjoy things in life. We rarely fixate on the grace that we get from God to endure things in life. And it is the same grace. It's the same grace, which is an unmerited favor. I heard, man, there was a great guy I was reading this last week who said, Don't think of feeding a vagrant in front of your home as grace. He said, that's not grace, that's just benevolence. Imagine that same vagrant robbing your family and trying to kill your kids and then you feeding that vagrant. Or imagine that vagrant coming and stealing your car and taking a swing at you and then feeding that vagrant. True grace is towards somebody who has a negative offense against you. That's different. That's what God has in store for us. It's a different kind of grace. It's not benevolence. It's a benevolent grace. So... What does this grace do? It's a supernatural thing. Grace in you is going to be a supernatural thing. When you cry out for grace, when you roll over and Leah's there, and you're like, oh my gosh, when you're reeling inside and your dreams just crashed, grace for you as a supernatural thing inside of you is going to help you endure where you didn't used to endure, where you shouldn't be able to endure, and where others around you are not enduring. It's going to be able to help you connect with God where you have a a trouble and a struggle connecting with God in that moment. Grace in that moment is something very deep within you that helps you in the pain, that helps you in the valley of unbelief where you used to fail, where you used to struggle. God gives you sustenance and He provides you a way out. It is unmerited favor. Like I said, it's supernatural. It's something we ask for. So I'm just going to talk to just three groups of you real fast and then I'm out. And the first group I want to talk to is just those of you in here that are hurting right now because you have a verse 25 situation in your life. I don't pretend that you don't. Right now I don't have any big ones. I have a bunch of little ones. But I know some of you have some really big ones. My message to you is that God is not intimidated by your situation. Man, you need to hear that. He's not intimidated by it. He's not wringing His hands. not wondering what to do. He's not scratching his head. We do. He's not. Not intimidated. He doesn't look sickness in the face and flinch. In fact, he mocked death openly. That's how in control he is. He's not humored by any mockery against his control because he's totally and utterly in control. His hand does not slip. His grasp does not weaken. He is present in every moment. You were at the mercy of no man. And you are at the mercy of no situation. 
You are only at the mercy of God Himself. And right now, as I speak to you, right now at this moment, God is drawing you to a closer image of His Son. You're being conformed. He's doing surgery on you. He's doing things in you, around you, among you, teaching you, leading you. So, what is it that God is surgically working on in you? What is it that He's doing? What is that thing that's being provoked that He's working with? Whatever it is, thank Him for it. I know it sounds weird, thanking Him for something like that. I mean, James, he says, hey, be thankful for your trials and tribulations because it's producing something different, right? You should be thankful for what God is doing in your heart. I hate, I'm a big, listen, I'm such an OCD person. I like everything being right. If there's awkwardness or things that are not right, boy, it sets me off. I need that. But God, out of His benevolence and His goodness to me, started making those things happen in my life. Why? Why is He allowing those things to happen? Why do I want to thank Him for it? Because He's doing something different in me. He's centering me closer to the Gospel. He's making me more like His Son. So thank Him. And then worship Him. Worship Him from a different place. It is more uncomfortable. It is harder. um, Because you're so... Your flesh is so used to fixating and being fascinated with itself. But as you flip that switch and begin to fascinate, be fascinated with God and fixate on Him, a different worship does evolve from that, right? Now, I want to talk to you as well that struggle with that, with being self-centered. And this is me, once again. I can be self-centered when I'm in the middle of Aaliyah. Man, had that happened to me, had I been Jacob, I'd have been whining about that. That would have been the rest of the book of Genesis, Luke whining about how he got stuck with Leah and how things would have only been different had he got Rachel. That would have been, that would have been the rest of the book. I like how John Piper says, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste it. God brings it. It's a tool in your life to draw glory to Him, to refine you, to center you around the gospel, to be a part of God's story. You know, if you are like me and you do slip and have a proclivity to be self-centered in the middle of those sticky situations, think about Leah. Think about Christ coming out of that later. We have no idea what God is going to do with the junk that we're staring at, the broken dreams. We don't know how to put them together. But I do trust a God who does know how to put it together. I do trust a God that is going to do something different than what I expected. And then if you're here and you know that you do not have a walk with Christ or you're not sure if you have a walk with Christ. And when I speak about messes, when I speak about dysfunctionality, you look at yourself and it's very easy for you to raise your hand and say, oh my gosh, that's totally me and I don't know what to do with with this situation. If that's you, then I will tell you that Jesus Christ came into the mess of messes and he did it for us he's very active he's very aggressive in the dysfunctional moments that is when he does his best work that is when he has done his best work for us is in the middle of dysfunction now humanity like i said is such a mess that we didn't even recognize jesus as god and then when he began to prove it we killed him you know that's where we're at with him So of all these issues and messes you find yourself in today, none of these messes are as bad as the one that puts you in opposition to God. Understand that spiritually there is no Switzerland, okay? There is no neutrality with God. There are friends and adopted family 
and then there is those who have declared war against God in opposition. Now that is a mess. But it's not a mess that he left without remedy. It's not a mess that he left without cure. He did that through the cross. And so step one is realizing that you're in opposition with God and you are not neutral. Okay? We are aggressive in our hearts. Our sin nature is very aggressive against God. And we are desperate for His rescue. Step two is just asking for this rescue. Turning from the story of life where you are the main character. Okay? Where you are the one that makes everything happen and everything else is the periphery. Right? Salvation is where you say, my gosh, I'm the periphery. There is a star in this movie, this story, and it's not me. It's not about me. It's part of it. 